from the same station that invented radio with subtitles. This is the elixir of eternal youth, a worldly story told by a group of travellers, a history of Brisbane, Australia and the world. This is Radio in Colour. A special documentary series to celebrate four decades of... Four, 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 triple, 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 Z. Welcome to episode 14 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series about 40 years of 4ZZZ. My name is Tessa Fox. We're well into the 90s now, and as we did with the 70s and 80s, it's time now to get into the groove of the era, the 90s, the epoch of played, piercings, undercuts and slacking off. Gone were the big hair and all of the synthesizers. In came a grungier vibe. Alternative became cool and then became annoying and played out. The underground became the new mainstream, and the edginess became the new norm. We're talking here about grunge, metal, hip-hop, and electronica, dirty guitars, and big beats. As with a lot of things historical, our story begins somewhat earlier. Monumental year. The Berlin Wall fell. Poland votes to legalize the Solidarity Movement. Ronald Reagan ceases to be President of the United States of America. It was only two years before seminal grunge album Nevermind came out. Okay, those two things aren't exactly of equal importance. We understand that. But the 90s were a transformative period for popular music. Just slightly before then, though, popular 80s music had entered its most indulgent phase. Gone were the stripped-down riffs of the punk era, in were screeching guitar solos and equally high-pitched vocals. Ugh. But lurking beneath the sleazy futurism of the 80s were actually some pretty interesting groups that would have a big influence on popular music to come. The crucible for a lot of this creativity was New York, where from the late 70s to the early 80s, a group of angry, noisy, relatively pretentious, but intriguing bands thrashed out new sounds, or at the very least, set out to destroy old ones. Their music was labelled No Wave, a direct contrast to New Wave, a host of new synthesizer-based bands, and a direct confrontation with some of the scene's more commercial aspects. Listening back, you almost get the sense it wasn't meant to be very enjoyable. A lot of the sounds are deliberately sharp, jarring, and annoying. Ironically, some critics now see the scene as uptight and stuffy, its players exuding the kind of know-it-all, condescending airs of ultra-proficient jazz bows masquerading as inept scumfucks. That's just one critic. But it was through participating in a scene ignited by the anger and energy of groups like Mars, Teenage Jesus and the Jerks, and James Chance and the Contortions that others still active today like Swans, and Sonic Youth were able to get a head start. (laughs) 
the birthday party were doing similar things with music that was a barrage of confrontational sound over the top of thick, funky bass lines. They eventually leapfrogged to London, a move that kick-started the careers of our very own Nick Cave and the late Roland S. Howard. Swans and Sonic Youth made it out of No Wave New York, but it was the latter that would have a big influence on the alternative music scene of the 90s. evolved over the years from the very dark and at times scary sounds of their debut album Confusion is Sex, which you just heard from, to become much more expansive and melodic, but they could still bring the noise and the pain when need be. After being initially dismissed by the critics, they started to get noticed with their third album, Evol, which is commonly seen as the end of their early chaotic sound, while the next one, Sister, made it into the top 20 of the Village Voices' Paz and Jop critics poll in 1987. Continually prolific, the band had another album out the next year, and they had their first hit with Teenage Riot.
turn out to be a sign of things to come. Sonic Youth. 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 Yeah, this tour, I mean, I mean, the way I see it is this tour, to me, is like a dare, you know? Because I know, I know there's kids out there, and they have the same, they have the same feelings. To me, it's like, it's like, it's like us and Nirvana and all the other bands that we're going to be playing with. To us, it's like, it's like, it's like a dare to our parents. It's, it's a dare to to the to the Bush administration. It's a it's a dare to the KGB who have who have overthrown Gorbachev this morning as we speak. God knows what it's going to be like in in the future. And in the future to us is 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 is, is a dare. So to us, I mean, fuck them. Fuck them all. It seems young people then, with a taste for guitar-based music, could hardly cop the increasingly masturbatory sounds of bands like Def Leppard, Twisted Sister, Warrant, and Winger. And in 91, The Walls and The Wales came tumbling down. Yep, I'm sure you saw that one coming a mile away. But it's true. The explosion of interest in what came to be known as grunge music stems largely from Nirvana's seminal album Nevermind in of the songs too, sometimes mumbly, sometimes angry, pretty much all downbeat, all helped to find the scene in the popular imagination, along with the look, the dirty denim, and the flannel. It all exuded a kind of world-weary cynicism and premature sense of resignation. Grunge music and slackers seem to go hand in hand. In a non-musical sense, the attitude was perhaps best exemplified by the character of Dante, a 23-year-old college dropout working in a convenience store in Kevin Smith's cult classic, 
clerks. You really went to Vermont? Well, when the hell was someone going to tell me? I'm not even supposed to be here today. So I'm stuck here until closing. Oh, this is just great. No, no, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to yell at you. Why'd you apologize? What? I heard you apologize. Why? You got every reason in the world to be mad. I know. Jesus, that seems to be the leitmotif in your life, ever backing down. I don't back down. You always back down. You assume blame that's not yours. You come in on your day off. You buckle like a belt. Do you know what really pisses me off? The fact that I'm right about your buckling? Then I'm gonna miss the fucking game. Because you buckled. Will you shut up with that shit? It ain't helping. I don't yell at me, pal. I'm sorry. See? There you go again. Well, maybe this guy in the Simpsons episode, Homer Palooza. Oh, here comes that cannonball guy. He's cool. Are you being sarcastic, dude? I don't even know anymore. After Nevermind, a whole host of other bands spawned under the grunge banner. Many had been operating for years, like the Melvins, while others, like Soundgarden, just got bigger. Labels started hunting for the next Nirvana, sending grunge bands left and right. Alternative music, unfortunately for those who gave it life in the first place, became just another label. While some groups undoubtedly rode the wave of popularity with glee, it ended up becoming too much for Nirvana's frontman Kurt Cobain, who committed suicide on the 8th of April, 1994. But the craze continued into the late 90s, powered by people like Kurt's wild girlfriend, Courtney Love, and her band, Hole. I'm all I wanna be A walking study then it started to fade with the rise of new major label-backed, and in some cases manufactured, girl and boy bands. And the final nail in the coffin, new metal. Popular music once again entered a decadent phase. That's the scene overseas, but at home things were a little different. In Brisbane, a number of locals suddenly found themselves awash with success due to the interest generated by Nirvana. But it wasn't because they made themselves over after seeing the record sales figures. and 70s, the bands from that era in Brisbane always had a bit of no BS about it. And you can compare that to Sydney. So Sydney has some really hard rocking bands and the Australian scene generally is no BS and it's pretty edgy and it's very, you know, get up on stage and smash it out and don't be a dick about it, just, you know, do your thing. But Brisbane's got this wonderful mix of isolation in some of the rural communities. A city that's trying to, back in the day, was trying to be grown up, like even the 90s, it was still perceived as a poor cousin to Sydney and Melbourne, even in terms of the industry. And then all of a sudden we had, you know, Powderfinger, Regurgitator, Pangaea, um, Custard, you know, um, a bunch of the, the guys that we grew up playing with, a few of us got elevated, which we were all stoked about. There was no anim- animosity or no jealousy about any of that. I was, I was legitimately stoked for all those guys that things started to happen and Brisbane became a hub. That's performer and producer Caleb James talking about the Brisbane music scene in the early 90s. 
Caleb started playing music in Brisbane in his teens. He describes his first band as terrible, but despite that, they managed to build up their chops over a couple of years and got to play some opening slots for Powderfinger and Pangea back in the day. Soon enough, he became wedded to the scene. Back then it was a bit different to what it is now, so once you start in that scene, you kind of get to know everyone fairly quickly because you tend to share gear and poster runs and promo and um, everyone wasn't necessarily in it for themselves. So once you kind of just started gigging or started getting gigs at some of those venues, you know, like uh, Metropolis and Funkyard and Roxy, the Zoo, um, Byzantine Bar, Orient Hotel, Treasury, all these kind of pioneering venues that probably didn't make much money that, that put bands on all the time, you know, Wednesday through to Sunday. I think that just gets in your blood once you're, you're in it. And then it's it's kind of uh, self-servicing. So you, even if you don't have a CD launch or something that you're doing, one of your mate's bands does, so you're generally helping them with things. So that was how the scene felt in the 90s. That's how, I think that's how the whole Brisbane scene kind of built up. Everyone was busy all the time, not just with their own stuff. So that's how I got into it. Well, that high school band, we, we started writing some songs that weren't completely sucky. So some of them were okay. And the first thing you do when you write a song that you think is okay is you want to record it for the rest of the world because they have to hear it because it's that amazing. We had terrible experiences with the first few recordings. They weren't at all like what we thought it was going to be. They sounded bad. They didn't sound like us at all. Essentially, they weren't flattering. And God forbid that maybe it was an accurate representation. Maybe we weren't that great. But you kind of have hopes as a band when you go to the studio and spend some money that it's going to sound good, feel good. So I started recording myself, my, my bands myself at home um, because of that frustration. And it wasn't because I thought that I'd do a better job. It wasn't even that. It was more I didn't think I could do worse and would save the money. And I just bought some really basic gear and started recording my bands really shoddily at first, but started getting really obsessed with that. Didn't think you could make a living out of it, just did it because we needed it and our other experiences have been bad and the recordings came out pretty well. And then some other bands that we were playing with, because of the, how I described the scene, everyone sort of, uh, at least, uh, you know, there's big pockets of people that knew each other. Um, some of those bands wanted me to record them as well because they liked, they knew what we sounded like and they heard the recordings and they thought it was flattering and that suited the band. I must have done something that was okay because it just snowballed from there. And then my time got so booked up that people started offering me money so that I would take their job and not someone else's and then when I started realizing I can get paid for it just jumped in with both feet and there was enough there was enough kind of uh, vibrancy in the scene and not just in terms of um, creativity but also in terms of really active bands doing it even even if it wasn't full-time doing it for real and in, in terms of their financial commitment as well so the scene was really healthy um, it wasn't that we we're all rolling in money and burning hundred dollar bills nothing like that but there was a sense of feeding into the, the thing that's paying you so no one just took their money and then didn't give back to the scene so as much as bands were paying me for my time I was buying my gear from the local music shops not online on eBay because that wasn't around um, so you're always putting your money back into the scene and those live music shops would be sponsoring you know some gig night at a venue and donating gear and backline and stuff because people like me are buying gear from them so they've got money um, so that whole thing kind of and I kept itself going it's like a a really healthy monster that keeps eating its own tail, you know? And it became a hub due to the growth in commercial interest generated from grunge and the Seattle bands overseas. But it's not like the music changed that much in Brisbane. By the end of the 80s, it was just hair metal after hair metal and pretty much the same song packaged up with different looking people and different guitar solos, you know? That was pretty much it. So the backlash was huge when Nirvana came out um, and, and obviously all the Seattle scene. That... That didn't necessarily instigate all the bands that were in Brisbane. The bands didn't just form because of that. They were already doing things like that. But it, it gave permission to venues and to, and to the bands themselves to treat themselves more seriously, I guess. So, um, I mean, a good example is Rhubarb, which is one of the bands I produced that I actually became a member of. I think if we tried doing something like that, those records in the 80s, there's no way it would have worked because it was definitely more of an not even underground just a below the level of financial return that labels would invest in or that the public even perceived as being a, you know, a big art form or a popular art form I'm an ex, 
but in the 90s those records started to sell and um, so even as a, an independent band we we were turning over serious money by the by the time we broke up and sort of got tired and I uh, had kids and stuff um, we were doing extremely well and that's partly due to our own hard work but also partly due to uh, I think the public's perception changing them getting sick of being handed really polished you know sort of perfected 80s music the thing that's interesting about all those bands you think how different custard and regurgitator and powderfinger are in terms of their genre in terms of what you'd classify them but at the heart of all those guys is just basic honest songwriting and no bs custards uh they don't shy away from being quirky and cheesy and they do it in the best way possible regurgitator as edgy and as and the fact that they're called regurgitator is a total piss take so they're basically recycling stuff that they liked and then taking the piss out of it basically and everyone loved it that's totally brisbane <laughs> that's such a brisbane thing to do Um, and Powderfinger just took really solid, simple songs and didn't fuck around with them, basically. They just treated them like they should be treated and, and did what they're supposed to do. There's no... Even as they got more commercially successful, those records really still aren't that polished. They're, there's a bit of life to them, a bit of, you know, a bit of spunk. thing I don't think you can necessarily put your finger on an exact recipe for what Bris what happened to Brisbane through the 90s but a few of the core threads that were running through it is a really healthy supportive scene where bands literally helped each other on every level so for instance if one of the bands that um, played with regularly was doing a CD launch or doing a, a, a bit of a gig where they needed to try and make some money towards recording, we would go and do the poster runs with them or sometimes for them you know, if they couldn't do it and you'd get 20 people and they'd come and spend an entire Saturday just walking around different parts of suburbs delivering things. I think that's a big part of it, so that healthy thing. But also I think a few bands actually commercially, been commercially successful, changed the perception in Australia of what Brisbane's capable of. I mean, they should have known already to go to Twins for starters, but um, I think the sheer consistency of the bands that were around at that time and the strength of the songwriting, um, and I'd include Rebub in that and any of the other bands we played with, it, we were surrounded by amazing songwriters. Um, and I think that's where the backbone of the 90s really came from, because I can still listen back to a bunch of those records, and the sounds sound 90s. You know, they've dated in that respect, the production approach, the effects, the guitar tones, all that sort of stuff, but the songs are still awesome. I still listen to the songs and go, no, they're great. In the same way that I listen to 70s artists and go, no, those songs are still awesome. Sure, the, the records sound like the 70s, but the songs are killer. So I think those two things had a massive impact. And that was a big part of why the 90s felt so great to be a part of. I'm, I feel really lucky. The Kung Fu Sing. Yeah, the Kung Fu 
the Kung Fu sing Yeah, it's the king Artists weren't only concerned with putting out music that sounded different, some wanted to make a statement as well. The early 90s saw a resurgence of overtly feminist rock coming out of America and the UK. Ula Sheehan gets to the roots of this noisy scene. So get out your batons and your shields, everybody. There's going to be a riot. From the same spiritual swamp that birthed Nirvana and Grunge, another more critical movie emerged, taking their cues from third wave feminism and punk rockers like Penny Smith and Lydia Lunch, a scene of angry, creative young women who truly gave a fuck started banging out tunes about the sexism and misogyny they encountered day to day. The group came to be known as Riot Girl after a zine produced by Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale, the founding members of Bikini Kid, itself a foundational band of the scene. Zines would form a key part of the music and be used as a vehicle to disseminate political ideas that provided the inspiration for the band. In true revolutionary form, a Riot Girl manifesto was published in the Bikini Kill Zine in 1991. Because us girls crave records and books and fanzines that speak to us, that we feel included in and can understand in our own ways. Because we want to make it easier for girls to see and hear and recognise each other's work so that we can share strategies and criticise and applaud each other. Because we must take over the means of production in order to create our own moanings. Because viewing our work as being connected to our girlfriends' politics, real lives is essential if we're going to figure out how what we are doing impacts, reflects, perpetuates or disrupts the status quo. Because we recognise fantasies of instant macho gun revolution as impractical lies meant to keep us simply dreaming instead of becoming our dreams and thus seek to create revolution in our own lives every single day by envisioning and creating alternatives to the bullshit Christian capitalist way of doing things. Because we want and need to encourage and be encouraged in the face of all our own insecurities in the face of beer gut boy rock that tells us we can't even play our instruments, in the face of authorities who say our bands, zines, etc. are the worst in the US, and because we don't want to assimilate to someone else's a boy's standards of what is or what isn't. Because we are unwilling to falter under claims that we are reactionary reverse sexist and not the true punk sock roll crusaders that we know we really are. Because we know that life is much more than physical survival and are patently aware that the punk rock you can do anything idea is crucial to the coming angry girl rock revolution, which seeks to save the psychic and cultural lives of girls and women everywhere, according to their own terms, not ours. Because we are interested in creating non-hierarchical ways of being and making music, friends and scenes based on communication and understanding instead of competition and good-bad categorizations. Because doing, reading, seeing and hearing cool things that validate and challenge us can help us gain the strength and sense of community that we need in order to figure out how bullshit like racism, able-bodyism, ageism, speciesism, classism, thinism, sexism, anti-Semitism and heterosexism figures in our own lives. Because we see fostering and supporting girl scenes and girl artists of all kinds as integral to this process. Because we hate capitalism in all its forms and see our main goal as sharing information and staying alive, instead of making profits of being cool according to traditional standards. Because we are angry at a society that tells us girl equals dumb, girl equals bad and girl equals weak. Because we are unwilling to let our real and valid anger be diffused and or turned against us via the internalization of sexism, as witnessed in girl-on-girl jealousism and self-defeating girl-type behaviours. Because, 
I believe with my whole heart, mind and body that girls constitute a revolutionary soul force that can and will change the world for real. That's from Bikini Kill's seminal album, Revolution Girl Style Now. Hannah was drawn into music as a means to push her activism while studying at college. As a volunteer at a women's shelter, she became interested in issues relating to violence against women and began addressing them in spoken word performances. At the encouragement of her friend, poet and writer Kathy Acker, Hannah ditched spoken word in favour of music. Soon after Revolution Girl was released, a cavalcade of other like-minded groups began releasing similar tunes. Like Bikini Kill, Bratmobile was spawned from the feminist DIY radical politics zine world. Alison Wolfe and Molly Newman formed the band after collaborating on the influential feminist fanzine Girl Germs. In 1993, they launched their first album, Potty Mouth. concerned with changing the culture surrounding punk music. Instead of allowing women to fight their way through crowds, many would invite them to the front of the show and ask male moshers to move to the side. Moves which weren't always enthusiastically embraced by the menfolk. The Riot Girl message resonated far beyond its birthplace in the US Pacific Northwest and saw bands pop up in the UK and even some here in Australia.
reprise of its progenitors Kathleen Hanna and Toby Vale, as well as other musicians who continue to this day, like Curran Tucker, who came to fame as part of the powerful Heavens to Betsy in 1994. By the mid-90s, Riot Girl music had started to splinter and break apart, fueled in no small part to media misrepresentation. But the scene remains a powerful source of inspiration to this day. to the end of the program and by now you might have a feeling we've left some things out. Yes, as I'm sure you're well aware, the 90s saw a surge in non-guitar based music, particularly hip-hop. 
We go now to a piece by 4ZZZ documenting its rise. Triple Z brings you a history of rap and hip-hop. The following information comes from a book called Cut and Mix by Dick Hebdige. <laughs> it's like a jungle sometimes. It makes me wonder how I keep them going under. <laughs> rap started in the South Bronx of New York, which had been mainly a black and Hispanic ghetto for decades. A high proportion of the population in the Bronx came originally from the West Indies and also from Puerto Rico and Cuba. When these people came from the Caribbean, they brought their music with them. Latin rhythms and voices were blended with black American music. Both reggae and rap grew out of city slum environments. Rap did for poor blacks in America in the 80s what reggae had done for the Jamaicans a decade earlier. The culture that grew up around rap is hip-hop, which involves dance, dress, language, graffiti and attitude. Rap got the blacks noticed again and helped to forge a sense of pride and identity within the community. In 1967, a DJ called Cool Herc emigrated to the States from Jamaica and came to live in the West Bronx. By 1973, Herc owned his own system and began DJing. He found, however, that the New York blacks wouldn't dance to reggae, so he began talking over Latin funk that he knew would appeal. At first, he merely dropped in phrases of street slang to add excitement from a live performance. Gradually, he developed a style that was so popular that he began buying records for the instrumental breaks rather than for the whole track. He would play this part several times over, coming from one record deck to another as he talked through the microphone. This style became known as the break beats. As switching between record decks got faster and more complicated, Herc couldn't rap and DJ at the same time. So he employed two MCs, Coke LaRock and Clark Kent, to do the rapping for him. The first crew had arrived. Shortly after, scratching was invented by a DJ called Theodore. Joseph Sadler, aka Grandmaster Flash, also helped to create hip-hop. After graduating in electronics, he played in parks at night. Flash became an expert at punch phasing, which is when the DJ hits a particular break on one deck while the other record is still playing. The punch works in hip-hop like a punctuation mark in a sentence. Flash was also one of the first DJs to work with a beatbox. Africa Bambada was another major figure in the early days. 
Africa Bambada is the name of a famous 19th century Zulu chief. It means affectionate leader. In 1975, he started a funk organisation for kids called the Zulu Nation. In the Zulu Nation, he set out to replace fights and drugs with rap, dance and hip-hop. Bambada became interested in the politics of race and culture through the Black Muslims, a militant black sect. The Black Muslims talked about the need for self-help and communal solidarity. At the same time, Bambada was trying to guide street kids through the gang phase towards a sense of collective solidarity. By the early 80s, the Zulu Nation had thousands of members worldwide. Disco was seen as the official black music of the mid to late 70s. The radio was only important as a source of sounds to be taped. The hip hoppers stole music off air and cut it up, just using a tape deck. It wasn't that the hip hoppers didn't like artists like James Brown, they did. But the black street kids wanted to bypass the retail outlets. They wanted to undermine the system that had taken these artists from the streets and put them out of reach. By taping bits of funk off air and recycling it, the kids were setting up a direct line to their culture heroes. They cut out the middlemen. Anyway, whoever owns sound and speech. King Tin III by Fatback, then Rapper's Delight by the Sugar Hill Gang, which became an international hit. A flood of rap records followed, although it was some time before the originators of hip-hop got into the studio. In the early 80s, Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five released two hip-hop hits, Adventures of Grandmaster Flash and the Furious Five on the Wheels of Steel and The Message. Keith LeBlanc played drums on The Message and also on Rapper's Delight. He also produced Malcolm X's No Sellout, which came out on Tommy Boy Records in 1984. Africa Bambada forged the connection between the street, black politics and the studio. In 1984, he collaborated with James Brown to produce a six-part 12-inch of Unity. I'll leave you with a quote from Africa Bambada. You must seek knowledge. Knowledge is to know and is the foundation of all things in existence. Knowledge is infinite. You must have wisdom. Wisdom is a manifestation of one's knowledge, the ways and actions one uses to make his or her knowledge known. You must have and get understanding. Understanding is when one draws a picture in his or her mind to see all things clearly with the third eye, the mind, to absorb what you get from knowledge and break it down so that you and all people will understand. With these three elements of life, we must build a better world, teach the young and old, use natural resources to uplift the people, not to make individuals rich, but to put the human mind back on the right path and get rid of sick, racist mentalities. That's a noisy account of music in the 90s. You've been listening to episode 14 of Radio in Colour, a special documentary series to celebrate the 40th anniversary of Brisbane's Radio 4ZZZ. We acknowledge the generous support of the Community Broadcasting Fund and of our partners in this production team. Radio in Colour is made by a team of young producers from 15 different countries, including Iran, Sudan, Uruguay, Syria, and Australia. This episode of Radio and Colour was recorded at the Edge Studios in the State Library of Queensland, as well as radio stations 4EB and 4ZZZ. We would be lost without Brisbane's cultural institutions, which have made us all feel very welcome. The Multicultural Development Association of Queensland is also a proud sponsor of Radio and Colour, and we acknowledge their support. This show was produced by Carolina Kaliaba and Stephen Regal. 
Ni Adipoyibi is our sound engineer and Blair Martin is our trainer. My name is Tessa Fox and special thanks to our guests today, Brisbane-based producer and performer Caleb James and a special thanks to Kim Stewart. You can listen back to our stories on the 4ZZZ website, 4ZZZFM.org.au and you can also follow us on SoundCloud to hear us on the move soundcloud.com slash 4ZZZ documentary. Pretend is not